Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770, the Highlights Podcast Edition. A really interesting conversation today about performance-enhancing drugs. We talked about the drug that Maria Sharapova admitted to using, why it was banned in the first place, why it was legal before that, and how we make this determination in the first place. We also talked about those uh, restaurants that have really sexy servers wearing really sexy cocktail dresses and whether or not that's a human rights violation. Or if it's uh, you know just a part of the restaurant market, restaurant business, you can listen to the Kincaid and Breckenridge Show weekday mornings, nine thirty to twelve thirty on News Talk seven seventy. Well, uh, yesterday, or I guess it was uh, Monday. What day is today's Wednesday? I think, or Thursday, as our producer wrote on our lineup sheet. What? <clears throat> <laughs> hey! Oh my goodness! So now I'm really confused. I think it was Monday when uh, Maria Sharapova teased that she had a big announcement to make, and I think a lot of people thought, well, she's retiring. Uh, turns out she uh, failed a drug test, a drug she's been taking for 10 years that recently became banned, a substance known as meldonium, which apparently seems to be a rather popular medication among athletes from Russia and the former Soviet Union. But it is something that's legitimately prescribed to people who have heart issues. Yeah. It's a drug that increases blood flow, allows more oxygen intake. There, there seems to be a demonstrable, a clear demonstrable benefit to those competing in sports. I think we're really rushing to judgment here, though, Rob, and there's a possibility that we should be commending her for her bravery playing high-level tennis with a heart condition. <laughs> Which a lot, there's that. A lot of people play tennis with a heart condition in Palm Springs, California. Apparently, there's a number of Georgian wrestlers, including an Olympic silver medalist, who also have been competing with the very, the very same heart condition. The, 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 the conversation around performance-enhancing drugs is one that, that bothers me, to be honest with you, uh, on some levels, because I think that there is a business reality at play here, particularly for sports leagues and sports associations, uh, the WTA in this case. Um, and, and then there's like the... There's the purists who come out and they say, oh, we should not have any sort of performance enhancement. But, I mean, we've been enhancing the performance of equipment for the longest time. I mean, the best, sorry, the worst golfer on tour today with the technology that he has available to him would clean up in 1950. Oh, sure. He'd win every tournament. It wouldn't yeah. be close. So, I mean, like, we've we've constantly been moving the goalposts on what performance looks like in elite sport. I wonder if we're we're not looking at this instance with Maria Sharapova and this drug and saying, well, you know, it was legal on December 31st. You know, why should it be legal uh, illegal on January the 1st? Well, but I think it speaks to this constant arms race that athletes and trainers find. What's, what's legal? What could this athlete take to, to help this athlete that's legal? And I think that seems to be the case here with this drug, that they found something that was legal. Now the, the doping authorities have finally caught on to it. Now the hunt will, will take them to whatever the next thing is. Uh, Eric Mueller joins us, uh, freelance journalist out of Washington, specializes in science, public policy, medical topics. Eric, thanks for your time today. Hey, great to be with you guys today. So, so can you tell us a bit more about this drug, uh, why it caught on, and what exactly it does that in, enhances performance? Sure, sure. Well, it was uh, invented back in the 1970s for livestock to improve their, you know, endurance and 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 so forth. But it really became, I just found out today, actually, became uh, used in humans, actually, in the Soviet days uh, with the Russian army. I spoke this morning with the inventor of this drug, a Latvian chemist, who said that it um, it boosted endurance. Um, and the ability of of the heart to protect itself 
during um, high levels of um, exhaustion, for example. Now, this same athletic benefit or benefit for these Soviet soldiers who took this drug back in the, in the war in Afghanistan, it was also prescribed to cardiac patients because it protected heart muscle cells from the damage that occurs uh, during um, different sorts of heart conditions, heart attacks, and, and other, other medical problems. So it's one of these sort of dual-use medicines. Is it dangerous for athletes to be using it? Well, that's the interesting thing. You've seen a lot about, you know, things like EPO and, and some of these other drugs, steroids that have these horrible side effects. Uh, according to the manufacturer, there had been no clinical studies showing any kind of negative uh, detrimental health effects for meldonium. So that is definitely an issue that they're raising in their defense. Well, yeah, that, that's... That's a big issue, I think, and particularly when you look at, at where uh, performance-enhancing drugs, you know, wreak most of their havoc. It's on athletes that aren't in the pro ranks yet that are trying to get there. Either they're exactly. yeah, minor league systems or high school football players. Right. So to have something that people can take that they believe gives them an edge but doesn't harm them, that seems to me like it's got some holy grail properties. Well, here's the thing. Uh, this has been on the radar for anti-doping officials for a while. Uh, it was on their watch list in 2015, and part of the reason was uh, during some testing, during a, uh, during a study conducted last year, they found this substance in the, uh, uh, in the urine samples of 2.2% of the, this population, over 8,000 Test, test results. So what that means is it, it's become a very popular drug. Uh, there was a report today from the British Medical Journal that uh, over 100 Russian athletes were using this at some, um, some uh, sport, sporting competition last year. Uh, so it, it's become very common. Um, now, uh, m you know, maybe there are, res are, are uh, health effects we don't know about. Maybe it's to level the playing field. Um, and it's just something that has not gone through clinical trials in the United States. It's not approved uh, for use in the U.S., Canada, or Europe. It's not, uh, so, not sold in Europe. You can only buy it in Russia. You can also, of course, get it on these uh, online pharmacies, which sell all kinds of things. So what is the threshold? I mean, WADA has its own list of, of what's considered stimulants, for example, and, and what's prohibited. Right. But something like caffeine, you could see an obvious benefit to one athlete who has caffeine in his or her system and another who doesn't, but, you know, caffeine's fine. Right. Well, um, this is, you know, caffeine is, is a short-lived stimulant. You're right. Uh, you know, a couple of cups of coffee, there are plenty of, of runners and cyclists who, who use that caffeine for a boost, a performance-enhancing boost. Does it, does it change their metabolism? Does it alter their body? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, you could get into some uh, chem chemistry on that, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure that that's the case. This is a drug that alters uh, certain me metabolic pathways in 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 our bodies, uh, changes things, um, and and it does to you know like uh, to protect the heart muscles, but it also has uh, a big impact on the ability of the the body to do more work and to recover faster. So I think that's sort of what the anti-doping officials are looking at. And the fact that, um, yes, there's no clinical trial saying this is bad, but it also means that there hasn't been any clinical trials done, <laughs> right. you know, so we maybe we don't know about it. 
Do we know that we can measure um, what it did for Maria Sharapova or other athletes? Well, let's stick to Maria Sharapova. Like, is there a before sure. um, this drug and after this drug? I, I look at Barry Bonds and his mm-hmm. um, alleged use of steroids. <laughs> right. And it's it's pretty obvious, like, when he really was uh, t- taking the juice and when he wasn't. Right. Um, here's the thing. You look at all these elite athletes. To stay at that top is very difficult. Um, the The kind of wear and tear on an athlete's body, whether young, aging, trying to stay at that top, the top 10 ranking, or, you know, someone who's at the top like Maria Sharapova. Um, there's a need to be able to play day after day at a very high level. Uh, you're very susceptible to all kinds of illnesses. You're, it's almost like you're living on the edge of being well and sick all the time because you're pushing your body so hard with the amount of effort you're putting out. Um, this sort of chemical can help uh, help your endurance. Maybe you last, you're able to last that third or fourth set. Uh, maybe uh, when you wake up, you can play that third day in the tournament when you when you need to. When without it, maybe you, you feel a lot worse. So we, I don't think we can have sort of measured, like you said, that there haven't been that kind of studies on it. There there have been studies, and there have been. Um, uh, studies about uh, uh, steroids, for example, and uh, EPO and some of these other things, and, and human growth hormone. We just haven't seen that yet with meldonium. The timeline's interesting here because I think Sharapova's got a legitimate argument in saying, well, you know, I was taking this for years, and then just kind of out of the blue, they, they said now it's now it's bad and it's banned. But the timeline's kind of damning for her because this this goes back to, to December, uh, I think, when, when WADA first... Um, put the word out that this was something that, that they were dealing with. Uh, I think uh, that, that this was passed on through, through the International Tennis Federation. It does seem as though she should have known. Right, and I had read one, some of her comments, that she didn't click on the link, you know, that was sent by, by WADA. Well, that's kind of the responsibility of all athletes. There are lots of things that athletes are not allowed to take on, on that list. You know, there are pages and pages, and it changes every year. And if you're going to be making... Uh, you've got sponsors behind you. You know, some some of these sponsors are now starting to drop a Sharapova I read today. Um, but it's your responsibility to see what you can put in your body and what you can't. There are a lot of seemingly innocent um, uh, medical supplements, something you get at your local, um, you know, health food store, something like this. Not of it, not cannot use them, cannot take these supplements. Um, they're antihistamines, over-the-counter uh, cold medications, not permitted because they have a use that can be seen as improving in performance. So it's really the athlete's responsibility. So if you're going to be in that game, those are the rules. Yeah, right. <laughs> we can argue about the rules, but, but that's the way it works. Is there something other than meldonium that is uh, giving players an edge right now that uh, has not been outlawed? Well, that's interesting. I was speaking with an anti-doping official yesterday um, on a background call, and there are labs always looking for things that are not on the list. Yeah. And and the list is very specific, but there are always uh, scientists and sports people who are looking maybe to shift a few molecules here or there um, so that uh, you can get a substance, a medication that has maybe some benefits. Maybe it'll allow your body to carry more oxygen in the blood. Maybe it'll allow you to break down lactic acid quicker so you feel better the next day. But can you do that with something that's not on the list 
um, and is just a few molecules different. Um, and so this is a constant battle, um, uh, something that we see all the time. Um, these are drugs that are found, uh, if, like you said, from livestock, from horse racing, from, um, from you know, anti-aging uh, things. So there's all kinds of things out there right. that the sports people are looking at. Like I use Butte so that I can do this talk show, for example. <laughs> so, uh, but a legit question, though, what's WADA's purpose then? Is it to level the playing field or is it to preserve sport in like one sort of time capsule, which they call the integrity of sport? No, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think that they, in the past, there have been uh, what what you could argue as some real abuses of performance-enhancing drugs that threaten the lives of, of young athletes and, and competitors, um, and that's probably how it started. Um, and that list has gotten bigger and bigger over time. Um, so you're right, it, it, and, and they are on a treadmill of sorts because every year there are new things coming out, and, and what we're seeing in the future, there may be things that we you, you can't pick up. There may be genetic changes that can be uh, that each athlete is going to we're going to see DNA changes rather than a substance, a chemical substance. So the future, you know, down the road is going to look quite different than what we're seeing today, and that may be beyond the scope of, of WADA and these other authorities. Well, I think if one wanted to make the case that, that part of WADA's uh, agenda seems to be moralizing, one could uh, point to the fact that. Canada Cannabis, which is, I don't think, helping anybody as a performance-enhancing right. drugs, is, is a prohibited substance. Right. Well, I, th- I think in, in some nations it's also legal, so I, I don't right. know. Um, you know, I, I'm not... Uh, I'm not sure why that you know why that is. I think that it could be a nod to to legal restrictions in in, in some nations where where uh, you know athletics uh, takes place. Um, so I don't I don't have an answer on that one. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that, Eric. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for the phone call. Good talking to you. Thank All right. You, you as well. That's uh, Eric Mueller, uh, freelance journalist out of Washington, writes on science, uh, medical topics, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and I'm trying to find the story from this morning because there was a story about one uh, Canadian Olympic athlete who talked about refusing some kind of painkiller, I think, when he was having surgery because he was just so terrified that he might accidentally have something in his system that, that he shouldn't have. So it does seem to get a little ridiculous, I think. Let's take a pause right here. We'll come back. Um, I think that tennis has uh, uh, really lost something here, and that they should go to bat for Maria Sharapova. We'll explain why after a quick break. It's King Kid and Breaking Ridge News Talk 770. By the way, Roger, that was Denny Morrison. The story today, how Denny Morrison, he broke his leg cross-country skiing in 2012. He was so afraid of violating the anti-doping code that he refused laughing gas because he woke up in the intensive care unit and first thing demanded to know what the doctors had given him to manage the pain. So that's how strict it is, and and that's how silly it is. I mean, it's a guy who broke his leg, and yet, you know, they're going to punish him because the doctors might have given him laughing gas. It's just, it's ridiculous. Um, when you were talking about marijuana not being a performance-enhancing drug, didn't uh, famous NFL and CFL running back Ricky Williams use marijuana to enhance his performance? Because he suffered, like, social anxiety disorder. Oh, did he? Borderline personality disorder. And he, he was, like, a spokesman for a drug called Paxil for a while there. And then, like dropped Paxil and went on ESPN and he said, pot is 10 times better than Paxil is. <laughs> well, it just seems to me that if an athlete's uh, excelling and test positive for, for marijuana, that's like an added benefit. It's right. like an added 
compliment to them that, wow, you're that good, and you're that good despite the fact that you're using marijuana, not because you're using marijuana. Yeah, see, the thing about performance-enhancing drugs is is that we are kind of hypocritical about our opinion on it once we find out. Like, we really like the home run in baseball, for example, um, but we loathe the guys who uh, will will... You know, bend the rules just to hit more of them. Like, I, I hate Barry Bonds because he's a jerk first and foremost, but he, he you know, look, he was, the guy used steroids. People know that. Um, you remember when George Bush, George W. Bush, like, pointed his finger and said, we've got to get a congressional hearing together. We've got to get the drugs out of sports in America. It was right after Bud Selig had his baseball, uh, his Major League Baseball saved by Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, arguably the two biggest roid users in the 90s, who went on that home run derby tear. So, like, it saved the game of baseball in the 90s. People loved it. And yet when we find out that they use steroids, we're like, oh, we, we hate those guys. They're cheaters. Yeah, and that was a weird thing because I guess it should be up to Major League Baseball what kind of protocol they have, what they are going to tolerate and, and not tolerate it just that got really weird because then you had congress involved and there were all these hearings before congress about all of this why is this the interest of lawmakers this is something for baseball to sort out and the fans think that it's just you know roid fueled nonsense and they can they can turn off i mean you know the wwf or the wwe kind of went through that where it was obviously there was the steroid era and all these wrestlers were all juiced up and i think the wwe realized that okay this is uh, getting out of hand and and they Felt like they had to deal with it. Yeah, baseball at the time, by the way, they had Rafael Palmero, who very famously pointed at a congressman and said, uh, let me be clear, I've never used performance-enhancing drugs, period. And then he did like a Viagra endorsement, and then he got busted for steroids later on. So it was like there was so much comedy with it. But back to Maria Sharapova. I read someone write that she's the biggest female athlete in the world, and I've been trying to challenge that all morning long. I can't think of somebody who is bigger in the world than Maria Sharapova. In North America, I could probably name a couple, but in the world, I don't think I could. And so does the World Tennis Association or, or whatever governing body, are they losing a big star for for no good reason? Or are they trying to take a stand? that may, They may, can't have double standards. No, but they should make how famous you are. drug widely available to everybody if it makes the game better. Well, that's a question, right? So if there's a, a certain training technique or a way that athletes can improve... Because there there are advances in, in training that obviously benefit athletes. Where, where does something like this fall? And why don't we get grouchy? Like, it's performance-enhancing drugs. That really upsets us. But when we make equipment changes and, like, the evolution of the technology that goes into sports, no one ever complains about that. Except for goalie pads. We occasionally complain about goalie pads. Well, to me, you know, it's like the NASCAR driver got suspended for taking Adderall. Uh, if a drug's going to make you more focused and you're driving a 3,000-pound death machine, maybe <laughs> everybody should be a little more focused out there. All right, listen, we got to take a break here. We'll, we'll be back with more right after this. Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. All right, I'm Roger. That's Rob. We are two guys who, you know, we'd like to go out and have a beer and chicken wings from time to time. Just like mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of two guys is in this uh, province of ours, uh, but a conversation that we're going to have today is uh, how should the people who bring the beer and chicken wings to your table be attired? Should they wear a sexy cocktail dress, or uh, should they be uh, made to wear more practical clothing for such a for such a, a gig? Well, this is interesting because uh, let me <laughs> how do you classify 
sexy, right? Uh, yeah, I think it's reasonable that uh, restaurants want their servers to to look presentable. But where, where's where's the line? Now, th- this all stems from uh, a decision put out or a, a statement put out, I guess, by Ontario's Human Rights Commission this week that uh, these kinds of gender-specific dress codes, uh, requirements that women wear high heels, short skirts, low-cut tops, that that could uh, potentially violate Ontario's Human Rights Code. So they, they've put out this statement making it clear to, to restaurants and bars that this stuff could get you in trouble. In response, Earl's, which is a big Canadian dining chain, uh, announcing that, uh, well, you know what, we're going to change our dress code. So now women, female servers, have the option of wearing slacks instead of skirts. Solved, right? I mean, listen, Restaurants Canada has always had this guideline that suggests you can't necessarily have two different styles of dress for your male employees and your female employees that create a disparity because uh, you could face uh, discrimination claims. And I, to me, I don't know if this is much ado about nothing, but it stands to reason anyway that if you're the kind of restaurant that hires a particular type of waitress, and I say waitress because they're not hiring guys to, to work the tables in these places, you, you've got this business model whereby you're going to have sexy young women in, um, I don't, don't want to say revealing clothing, but certainly like little black dresses and high-heeled shoes. That They'll be the ones who deliver the food and, and beverages to the tables. That'll be part of the restaurant experience, that you get to have this sexy woman that you might not otherwise get to talk to come. She is paid to serve you. You will tip accordingly. That's a business model. So at what point then should a government be allowed to, or, or worse, a human rights commission, be allowed to interfere with your business model? Well, that's the entire business model of Hooters, obviously, for example. Uh, but no, you're right. I think if if you have female and male servers, and and the men can wear a nice shirt and tie, or you know, and the women have to wear a low cut top, that seems discriminatory. I, I noticed I was at a I won't give the name uh, an Irish pub restaurant where the the female servers are wearing kilts, uh, but the men aren't. So well. I mean, it's a kilt. Why, why, why shouldn't the men be wearing a kilt? You've got to go to the Scottish bar if that's what you <laughs> apparently, want. Apparently. Yeah. Apparently. Um, but he, let me read this. This is also in, this is in the statement put out by the Ontario Human Rights Commission yesterday. And it quotes Kathy Laird, who's executive director of the Human Rights Legal Support Center. She says, quote, excellent customer service doesn't have a cup size. I hope women will call us if cleavage is deemed an essential skill in the workplace. So what if uh, an exotic dancer calls this woman and says, this is outrageous. My employer says in order to for me to do my job, I have to take my clothes off. I have to bare my breast to do this job. Is I mean, is that the kind of thing that, that would fall under this? Because that's kind of, um, you know, important to that job, it would seem. See, I, I'm coming at this from a, a bit more of a global perspective. A universal perspective, if you will. And we want to open the phones to you. 974-8255 is the phone number to call. You can text us as well. 770-770. You know, if you're having your, your lunch and you don't want to uh, talk with your mouthful, um, or, or maybe you're dining at one of these restaurants right now thinking to yourself, yeah, boy, exactly. Um, uh, but you know, this is a conversation that we're having on our Facebook page as well at facebook.com slash news talk 770 Calgary. Now I come at this with a bit of a global approach because it's all fine and well. 
for a human rights commissioner in Ontario to wag their finger at Earl's restaurants and say that your waitresses should be allowed to wear pants if they so desire. That's an accommodation that you should make for them. But at the same time, I think they're wagging their finger at young women who choose to work these positions in this uh, uh, in, in these garments and high heels because they like it. They like to do that, and they want to do that, and they think that it gives them uh, a bit of an edge, and they make more money. I don't think that, the, that there's a lot of women that want to get into a, a gig uh, wait, uh, waitressing tables at a restaurant like this just so that they can go to the Human Rights Commission. Right, and even getting beyond what they're wearing. I mean, I, I think it's just the human nature that uh, people are going to enjoy the attention from someone they deem to be attractive. And if you're ordering beers, ordering wings, and the person bringing them to you is someone you consider to be attractive, and that person is being really nice and friendly and, and even flirtatious with you, people are going to enjoy that. What? So if, flirtatious if, waitress? If, if the dress changes to pants, it still doesn't change that. right? So I don't think it's going to change the fact that restaurants and bars are still going to factor in appearance when they're hiring the people who are going to be dealing directly with the customers because they know they're doing this for a reason. They're not putting the women in these uniforms so that the manager can gawk at them. They're putting them in these uniforms because they know that people like that. They're doing it because they think it's going to be good for business because it's going to bring people in the door. That kind of leads to the the, the, the point I put at Newstalk770.com earlier today. But let, let's get a, a phone call in here first. Hi, Alan. How you doing? I'm well. How are you guys doing? Good, thanks. Go ahead. What's on your mind? The one angle that I think is not always looked at is that if I apply to be a firefighter, a a nurse or work at a bank, there's a certain dress code that I'm required to wear. And if I'm not comfortable doing that, then I shouldn't do that job. So I think a lot of times these employees have a choice of which establishment they work at. If they want to wear something more comfortable, then they can work at a a, a Boston pizza or a, a Denny's or something. And if But if they want to work in a, a little bit nicer environment and the dress code is this, then when they walked into the building, they could see what people were wearing. I think they had a choice to make at that time. So I think it's a little unfair to say I want to work here and then say, oh, but I I don't want to wear these pants as a police officer. I want to wear sweatpants because that's <laughs> how I'm more comfortable. So. Well, no, I, I hear what you're saying, and, and I think you're right. You know, if you are a firefighter, there's a dress code requirement, right? You have pressed pants, pressed shirt, and then uh, uh, when the house is on fire, you put on the protective clothing. And, and you know, it's hard to argue that the uh, the clothes that uh, a banker is asked to wear are, um, uh, you know, disparaging or disrespectful. I think that wearing a suit or, or uh, you know, business attire for, uh, for a man or a woman is, is probably a respectable choice. But then there comes an instance, though, that we saw at that uh, beer marketplace in, I think it was Ottawa, Rob, maybe it was in Toronto, where uh, they changed the dress code. So this uh, this lady was working at this place, and then one day they brought in these, like, tennis dresses and said, uh, this is the new dress code, ladies. Uh, uh, get over to the change rooms and put these dresses on. So at that point, though, I mean, does that change your mind, Alan? If they changed the policy on you while you worked there, would, would you have a different opinion? Yeah, I think so, absolutely. That's totally fair then because um, not everyone's going to be comfortable even if they, you know a police officer also they come in when they say okay everyone's going to start wearing shorts all the time like some people won't enjoy it other than the the, the bicycle police officers but yeah <laughs> then I can see like okay well this isn't what I signed up for I think then you have a legitimate concern whether it's what you wear or even if they change your scope of work well today you ha- you were hired as a server but today you're scrubbing toilets and also going on the roof and repairing holes in the ceiling like 
if they're going to change the scope of work that wasn't what you signed up for, then yes, I think you have a legitimate concern. But if that is established in place when you joined it, then I think you have to either say, yeah, I'm comfortable with that or no, so I should look somewhere else. Yeah, it's a good call. Alex. What do we mention banks? Imagine how weird that would be if, if banks did that. They hired tellers based on their looks and put tellers in low-cut tops. It's a, well, you know, hey, you know, too many people are using the bank machine. We want people to come in and interact with the tellers. Let's get some, you know, attractive young women and we'll put them in skimpy outfits. It would seem bizarre. But it is, so it is funny that it's kind of an accepted thing when it comes to restaurants. And it doesn't, it's not really the approach anywhere else, is it? Now, I'm just trying to, as we go into commercial break here, would you like another beer? You know what? Yes, I would. Would you like to cash another check? As a matter of fact, I would <laughs> catch another check. Hey, let's take, take a little break here and uh, hear more of your phone calls, 974-8255. Your thoughts from uh, our Facebook post on this matter as well. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. You know that I, would be I tell you what, a lot of text coming in on this. I like how this uh, person ties the, the previous conversation back to this. Says, Do you think Maria Sharapova would be as popular? She had to wear pants and a high-collar shirt. Uh, change the tennis dress code, see where tennis goes. I mean, Maria Sharapova is very good at tennis. Not like, who's the other Russian, Anna Kornikova? Yeah. But let's be honest. I mean, Maria Sharapova is the top earner because of the endorsements. And the endorsements, uh, I mean, she's a spokesmodel, essentially. Well, there's no question about it. The, the prize purses in tennis uh, are, are substantial for female players, in part because of their popularity. And, yeah, I mean, I don't think that... See, this is the problem with the dress code thing in restaurants, is that... Um, nobody wants to say the, the real reason behind it. It's because the sex sells. We like to look at the sexy women. And so uh, the restaurant manager's business policy is going to be to hire sexy women, but they just can't put that in the ad. You know, and it's sort of like, yeah, you're, you're right. Maria Sharapova, I enjoy watching her play tennis, but I probably enjoy watching her play tennis more than women I find less attractive than her. So what, all I'm getting at is that the, the business, the restaurant, should be allowed to say, this is what the one ad should read. It should say, we are hiring pretty young things, 5'4 to 5'10, under 150 pounds, that look good in this particular dress. All others need not apply. Don't waste anybody's time. But they can't do that because we would cry foul. And as a result, they have to go through the charade of interviewing everybody who comes through the door and says, uh-huh, uh-huh, if you were an animal, what would you be? Well, what do you think? I mean, when Victoria's Secret goes to hire uh, its next uh, model, <laughs> it could be anybody, really. It could be anybody. <laughs> Who knows what they'll get? Uh, Don is phoned in. Hi, Don. Hey, how you doing? Good. I'd like to continue on. Like my wife, she wears high heels only for work. And boy, I tell you, when she comes home from work, those are the first things she takes off and soaks her feet. I mean, uh, women should have the right to choose whether they want to, what kind of footwear they want to wear. I think also that women or men, depending on what location you're at, should should have people look at them rather than just sex objects yeah sex sells yeah that's right but i can i can i can i've been to places where i've met a very voluptuous sex, sexually woman but she was well clothed she was well spoken and and she earns my respect more than going to some place to have something to eat or drink and look at the scantily clad women who only wear that because they know that sex sells and they can, they can sell that to make themselves more money. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a different thing. Thanks for the phone call, oh, Don. Sure. Right, and this yeah. gets into the whole tipping debate because yeah. it, it's it's demonstrably true that, that people tip more to those kinds of servers, or at least men do. 
Uh, and, and that's a fact. And, and, you know, if we took tipping out of the equation and just built it into, to the price, you know, that, that might be one of the, the factors that, that drives this. But clearly right now, I mean, it's, it, there's a financial incentive for servers to do this. I argue this, that, um, you make more money working in a restaurant where they don't have like a little black dress uniform. You know what I mean? So like, let me put it to you this way. If you go to the most expensive restaurants in this city, where it costs you, you know, you take your husband or your wife out for dinner, it's going to cost you 200 bucks yeah. with a bottle of wine, yeah. right? You're going to tip 20% on that. I think yeah, that the server there is going to make more money than the server at the casual dining restaurant where she's more scantily clad. Well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And, and those establishments, they, they're hiring servers based on, on skill. Right, and then those servers are, are good at what they do, right, and people expect that because they're paying top dollar for for those expensive meals. For the food, yeah, they're paying for the food, not for the not for the service act. Right. So I see what Rob's got to say. Not you, that Rob. There's a guy named Rob who's phoned in. Hi, Rob. Go ahead. Hey guys, how you doing? Good. Thanks for taking my call, and hey, you guys are. I love listening to you guys show. You appreciate, appreciate it. Good. Hey, thanks, Rob. Appreciate <laughs> that. Thanks. So I got three words for you here: men in kilts. What do you think of all that? Well, that's the that. the window cleaning yeah, uh, guys. Isn't that, that's right. Do they actually right. wear kilts? I don't know. I've never <laughs> actually hired them. But the, the fact is, what is what, what is what is the the message that they're portraying there, right? Hey, what? we're going to clean windows and we're in kilts. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think it's a funny joke too. And and you know what? Frankly, I mean, like, there's a bunch of window washing places in town, so you could either hire those guys or you could hire anybody else. But I think the guys who work for them, they, they're in on the joke and they get it. And yeah. I don't, I don't think that the point of men in kilts is to say, now, now here's the thing. Okay, we got a lot of lonely <laughs> housewives who want to look up your skirt and check you out. Because uh, that would be totally objectifying. That that would be akin to this restaurant saying, look, you're going to wear this. Guys are going to grope you. You're just going to have to put up with it. Like that's that's, right. that's but, not the case, right? But the question is though, when when are we going to get away from this whole idea of social engineering? Like when is the government, the man, going to step out of the way and let businesses be businesses, let let society run itself, let capitalism work itself out? Like why does it have to step? Why do they have well, to step in? Yeah, and let me tell us everything. Let me take that one step further with you, Rob, and see what you think of this. When is the Human Rights Commission going to stop trying to tell uh, uh, by way of statement or decision? Try and tell men that it's not okay for you to think that a waitress is attractive or to go to a business because, you know, you, you, you find it sexy. Uh, probably when we're all chemically castrated. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I didn't expect that answer. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, that was weird. No, but I understand at some level that, you know, businesses shouldn't have discriminatory policy. I mean, I've worked at a fast food uh, restaurant when I was in high school, and obviously we had to wear a uniform. But it was the same uniform for for men and women, right? And so I mean, you know, that point about the double standard, I, I get that. I can I can understand that at some level. But at the same time, I mean, you know, Hooters is, is such an obvious example because that's they're totally upfront about what they do, what they are, and you know, women who would choose to work at Hooters know full well what they're getting into. So is that, is that a problem we really need the government to solve? I, I don't think so. But, yeah, I, I think some of these restaurants try to have it both ways. They try to be that but pretend that they're not. Exactly. And, and yeah, that, I, that, that bothers me. I don't need to know that the government needs to fix that problem. I'd, I'd rather see the marketplace correct it, but it, it exists. And, and it's, it's pretty plain to see for anybody who's watching that there's a lot of restaurants out there in the casual dining space where food is secondary. And it's all about yeah. just sitting in the dining room and, and, and getting the experience of being waited on by a certain type of staff. 
So I don't know. I mean, if, if you're the type of person who has a problem with that, I don't know why you would want to be a part of it and why you'd want to work there. I, you know, those restaurants serve a need. They fill a, they fill a, a hole in the market for people who want to pay for that sort of thing. Then there's other people who want nothing to do with it and they go elsewhere. The flip side is, do, do we need to ban it? Like if a restaurant says to its servers, look, just, you know, wear what you're comfortable wearing. And a server thinks, well, if I wear something revealing, I'll get more tips, so that's what I'm going to choose to wear. Do we also need to prohibit that? That would seem to be a logical extension of this approach. I think it's a topic for another day, because we are fresh out of time, Rob Breckenridge. So it would seem. (laughs) Well, uh, the news to 1230 is next. Danielle Smith is in afterwards. Um, And uh, we'll be back tomorrow at 930. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770.